Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 7th of December 2020 and this is episode 187. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to social historian Dr Mary Fraser about her research into police and policing in Britain during the First World War. Mary spoke to me from her home in Glasgow. Hi Mary, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Right, thank you Tom and thank you for asking me. Um, Yes, I became interested in the Great War during my PhD at Goldsmiths, University of London, uh, which was in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology and I was supervised by the sociologist Professor David Silverman. I looked at the history of the family and the child comparing 1905 to 1920 with the present day which at that time was the 1980s. Um, What made me particularly interested in history was the analysis of a popular weekly journal. And from this, it was possible to hear the voices of the people who were undertaking the work of caring for the families and children in their daily lives. And it came out in the way in which they wrote about their struggles and their problems. And it brought these people to life. And also the journal gave advice on how to be the good parent and child, which also led you to be able to see the moral value of the day and how they were passed on. This was a a relatively new way of examining history, starting with the struggles and conflict and then building up a picture of the everyday lives of those involved in the minute details of their daily lives. So this started my interest in history, particularly 1905 to 1920. And about 10 years ago, I wondered if the police would also be an interesting group to study in a similar manner. And I gained, gained access to the Scottish Police College and asked the librarian there if they had a similar popular weekly journal. And she introduced me to a journal called the Police Review and Parade Gossip, which I think is a wonderful title for a journal, um, which was widely read by policemen on the beat at that time. It was an important journal in its day, as the ordinary policemen on the beat had no voice to share their issues that they were concerned about. And the journal provided an outlet for their struggles, grievances, and questions about their job. It also encouraged policemen to think about policing as a career with promotion prospects so as to foster pride in their work and also self-improvement. Not only that, but their wives also contributed to on a weekly basis during the war. But in writing about the police for the whole of the period, 1905 to 1920, was far too large a task all in one go. So I chose one of the most significant periods during that time, which was the First World War, to limit my work to something manageable, which could give depth to the work. So my work concentrated traits on the home front in which the police were. Um, I might also develop other periods, particularly immediately after first, the First World War, at a later date, and, and that's in the in the planning. <laughs> so why do you think this subject is important? Um, it's very important, I would say, because the history of the work of the police has, has been a neglected area of study, particularly during the Great War, when massive changes took place, not only in the police as an organisation, but also in the work they were asked to carry out. So unless we understand 
our history. There's no basis for understanding why we've arrived at where we are today. And to learn the issues and mistakes in areas that have been tried before and sometimes failed so that we can avoid creating some costly and ghastly mistakes again. Also to view with wonder at some of the events that have happened in the past, the innovations, the passions, the dire situations, which particularly comes out in, the, in a period such as the First World War. To examine some of the extraordinary situations that people in societies are capable of. Let me just give you one example. Some people have said that during the Great War, the police were uh, an organ of the state. Well, in many instances, they did carry out the directions given to them by the Home Office and other government bodies. But they also politely but firmly refused to carry out some of them, notably the request for surveillance of all women in receipt of the war separation allowance, as this received very negative and passionate public protest about this request from the Home Office, which was widely publicised and debated passionately in the House of Commons. So the police exercised their autonomy, which is one of the important foundations of the British police, by this refusal. And you can see this in letters from the police uh, metropolitan commissioner, Sir Edward Henry, to in, in the National Archives at Kew. It provides an example of how the police claims of autonomy by individual officers and by the police as an organisation actually worked in practice. Autonomy in the police service is still one of the major planks of the British police service. Now, before we get into the war itself, could you give us a brief overview of the Edwardian police service in Britain? And I know that is absolutely a massive task. A few things that, that are worthy of note in, in, this, in this area. Since the development of the modern police service from about the mid-1800s, the service has comprised three main areas. The main one, which people are most um, willing to recognise, is the Metropolitan Police, and they're directly, they were directly responsible to the Home Secretary. And then secondly, the County Forces, and thirdly, the Borough Forces, not necessarily in that order. And they were responsible, responsible to their local authorities. The Borough Police Forces were centred on large towns or cities, which came to be those with populations of more than 5,000. To carry out their role, the police have, since the mid-1800s, relied on public support. Modern policing work took many years to become established, so that according to the historian Professor Clive Emsley, by 1893, the Bobby was firmly established as a model part of the British Constitution. Their organisation remained at national level for the Metropolitan Police and at local authority level for counties and boroughs until the Desmond Committee recommendations of 1919 were implemented, although there, were a gradual, there was a gradual integration of smaller forces into larger ones. Up until 1920s, each police force had its own rates of pay, pensions, time off arrangements and benefits, such as housing allowances, which caused much discontent between different forces, particularly up to at least 1910, as the pay was higher in the Midlands and the north of England compared with the metropolis and the south, mainly. Standardisation was fiercely resisted by county and boroughs, um, who jealously guarded their independence from home office control. During the Edwardian, Edwardian period, up until the end of the war, the size and growth of the police forces generally gave, gave cause for concern, mainly due to their cost. The government raised funds in the metropolis by about four pence in the pound over the whole area, and this gave more than half the cost of the police service, with the remainder being made up with a grant from the Exchequer. While the counties and boroughs, around half the cost of policing was paid by the Exchequer, with the remainder paid by the ratepayers. This was why increases in pay were so tightly controlled, so as local authorities didn't incur 
incur the wrath of their ratepayers. By 1909, the Metropolitan Police Service employed 16,672, to be precise, policemen of various grades on ordinary police duties. But by the start of the war, this number had risen to more than 19,000, an increase of 14.5%. And a similar increase was seen as in the counties and boroughs across England, Wales and Scotland. Much of this increase was due to the implementation of the 1910 legislation to give policemen one day off in seven, which took many uh, years to implement in some forces because of the increase in costs by recruiting more policemen. By the end of the war, the number of uh, metropolitan police had risen to 21,500, around a third of all policemen in Great Britain, with 37,000 employed in the counties and boroughs of England and Wales, and nearly 6,000 in Scotland, while the Glasgow force accounted for around a third of all policemen in Scotland. The rank and fire policemen from Edwardian times to at least the end of the First World War were strikingly lowly, being from working and lower class, lower middle class families. Policemen were always uh, recruited from a previous occupation, and indeed I found only one in a force of nearly 2,000 who came directly from school, as those under 20 years of age were not considered to be fully grown and hardened for the work. So their previous occupations give us an indication of their status. Their physical characteristics were well above the average, with their physical stature, chest and weight measurements um, indicating that they were robust and fit, seen as an advantage as being a symbol of authority on the streets. Rural recruits were seen as the, uh, as the best recruits, mainly because of their physical stature and also because they were seen to be subservient. A study of the Metropolitan Police shows that only 10% of recruits up until 1910 were from non-manual jobs. So 90% were from manual manual jobs. And the ones who were the 10% um, of non-manual jobs were people like clerks and small business owners, many of whom had failed to gain respectability in their, their trades and were looking for social advancement by joining the police. Many who joined were also looking for job security, as at that time many of the lower class jobs were insecure and only part-time and irregular. Um, and also a regular income they were looking for, higher than in their previous jobs. So that the proportion of men from the lower social levels more, were more than in the population as a whole. I found the same in the Glasgow Police Force, where around 30% were from an agricultural background. The majority were previous farm labourers and farm servants. Many of the others were also from the labouring classes. But towards the end of the Edwardian period, the police recruited an increasing number of skilled and white-collar workers who were able to undertake the increasing professional and specialised duties, such as traffic management. The service also required increased literacy in order to write reports which many policemen hated doing. So the worst story is that they would avoid arresting people um, because of the need to write a report afterwards. So during the Edwardian period, the police, like many other groups, such as nurses and bankers, were unaware of the need for better education. The emphasis was on learning on the job. But training schools started to be set up during this period, concentrating first on the education of detectives and then on recruits to the uniform police service. Recruits to the higher levels were often from gentlemen of good social standing, in inverted commas, um, and were recruited from outside the police service. During the war, the upper ranks were also tending to be from uh, the higher ranks of the military, uh, military police.
police, military service, um, military servicemen. The social values they held were those needed to deal with and control the regulation of working class communities, which was where the majority of crime was seen to occur, and accounted for around 80% of the population. And they didn't deal with elite crime. The policeman was expected to uphold middle class values, although he didn't originate from this group. The values were of men who worked hard in a stable job with a with a stable income, had stamina, was sober at a time when sobriety was linked with respectability, and was thrifty and self-controlled. They needed to show deference to authority, and the men were also expected to be head of their households to control the women and children. What was the nature of crime in Edwardian Britain? I know that's probably, again, a massive um, sort of story, but if, if I was sort of an average citizen in Glasgow, what exactly would, would be my experience of crime on an average week? Crime was really seen as upholding middle-class values. So the role of the police in, in pre-Edwardian Britain with an all-male police force was to prevent crimes such as burglary and protect property, to regulate public order and to disperse political mobs and strikes. They were to seize suspected criminals and to attend police courts to give evidence. So bearing in mind that the policeman's work was entirely on the beat, in order to do their job, they had to know every part of their beat. So the streets, the courtyards, the alleyways, the outside of the houses, etc. on their beat. They were authorised to arrest suspicious persons, but had to be careful in doing so, so that they didn't bring the police service into ill repute by wrongful arrests, with criticisms in the press and the potential for the resulting public inquiry. The police were also authorised to inspect public houses and beer shops, lodging houses and street stalls to ensure compliance with the law. In these days, excessive alcohol consumption was was linked with the idea of degeneration of the nation, so was viewed very seriously by many individuals and organisations, particularly those advocating temperance. In this, he was particularly aware of the role of the good woman who should be in the home looking after the family, so those seen outside, particularly if they were rowdy or drunk and disorderly, not only created a social nuisance, particularly if they were rowdy or drunk, but they also were seen to neglect their homes and particularly their children, which could possibly bring in other services to assess the whole household. The policeman was also responsible for looking after beggars and tramps, of which there were very large numbers for the war, which gave rise to much concern in the police journal as to how to deal with them. Mainly they moved them on. They were also responsible for disorderly persons and those causing a breach of the peace. Much of this was said to be through drunkenness, to ensure these people didn't offend the middle classes who could, who could complain of their behaviour. So we can see that the policeman is a, was an arbiter of moral values and behaviour by enforcing the social norms of the middle classes, by, for example, by preventing soliciting by prostitutes and other women on the streets, and by obse uh, seizing obscene prints and publications, and by stopping gambling in the alleys and back streets. He also imposed the moral values of the time by arresting youths for housebreaking and petty crime, such as stealing fruit from orchard. Apart from crime, the police were also asked to provide municipal welfare services so that they had to report on street lighting, checking on social nuisances of things like smoking chimneys and excessive street noise, seizing stray dogs and stopping runaway horses. And because this was such a dangerous activity, you can see that some policemen were rewarded for their success in stopping a runaway horse. They were also responsible for rescuing drowning people, and again this was noted in their personal records as a significant achievement, and also carrying victims to hospital, accident victims to hospital. They
They'd also have to report on dangerous buildings and watch out for the outbreak of a fire and help to deal with it until the fire brigade arrived. Over time, many new duties were added, for example, traffic management to ensure public vehicles were serviceable and to license drivers and conductors, to manage lost property offices and to answer numerous questions from tourists and visitors. And because policemen came into contact with so many people on the streets, they acted as a symbol of authority and they were an agent for transmitting British social values, which I think was a major issue in recruitment. With the outbreak of war, what sort of problems did this create for the police force in Britain? And did did the nature of crime change and their response to it over the course of the war? Right, yes, indeed it did. Um, The war changed many aspects of policing, as well as emphasising other aspects, and brought a huge number of different duties for the police to deal with from the very first week of the war. And what I want to talk about is just four of these to give you a a flavour of some of the uh, more serious changes and um, emphasis. The first one I've already indicated is um, the request by the Home Office at the instigation of the War Office in a memorandum to war chief constables to put all wives in receipt of the separation allowance under police surveillance. The war separation was allowance was set up in the first week of the war, which was the 10th of August, and was given to all wives of men recruited into the armed forces. And this was to encourage voluntary recruitment so that the government could say, um, you sign up for war and we'll look after your family. But it was given provided the women didn't commit a crime, in which case it could be stopped. This request was because of the worry that wives of men who had been recruited into the military were left on their own without the guiding hands of their husbands. So the police were asked to perform what could be seen as the role of a surrogate husband to control the wives to ensure they didn't spend their war separation allowance on immoral living or on drinking. Wives up and down the country were outraged at the insinuation that they didn't know how to spend their money wisely and were supported by many Labour MPs with numerous questions and assertions in the House of Commons and by many local and national labour organisations. Chief constables were sent card indexes of all the wives living in their area so that surveillance could be undertaken. But because of the national uproar, many set up special units with only a very few senior officers to deal with any instances of women who became drunk and disorderly on the streets. And other police forces told their officers to detain any woman who was drunk and disorderly until she became sober, and then to warn her of the consequences of her behaviour, which could result result in her losing her allowance, so that women were warned on the first occasion that if they continued to be drunk and disorderly, they could be taken to court and prosecuted, which would result in the loss of their allowance. This first national debate lasted from the first week after the outbreak of war until the end of the year. Also during 1915, when the police were again asked by the Home Office to deliver letters to all the women receiving the allowance, reminding them that they might lose it if they committed a crime, the police politely refused to be involved, reminding the Home Office of the uproar that had previously occurred. And the police said, look, our role is not with law-abiding women. Our only our role is with those who break the law. So we have no role with people, with innocent people. And the second area that I wanted to come on to was the policing of alcohol. Now, particularly when increasing restrictions on opening hours began to be implemented in August, in late August 1914, with the implication that increased drinking caused loss of product 
productivity, particularly in, indus in industries producing war materials, and it undermined personal efficiency of both the troops at home and on embarkation at railway stations, and also in the population as a whole. The police were one of the major planks of the Central Control Board between June 1915 and early 1917 in its sweeping restrictions to control the opening hours of um, public houses and other, and other places that sold alcohol in an, on a nationwide basis. So although policing alcohol was always part of their role, with the huge restrictions on opening hours, the need for their vigilance increased. Um, and we can see many landlords prosecuted for serving alcohol out of hours, and also individuals for buying and consuming alcohol, including treating others to a drink, which was banned um, as buying a round of drink was said to increase alcohol consumption. Now, the third area I want to come on to is um, one dealing with policing sexual morality, which was a huge area, some of which uh, was relatively new police work. So whereas police had always been involved in trying to prevent prostitution, particularly in areas where the public complained about soliciting, during the war it became a major area of work and was uh, in three waves. The first of these was with the mass recruitment of fit young men into Kitchener's new army. And as you know, they were all taken to large camps around the country to be trained for six months before being sent to the front. These camps were an immense attraction to young girls and women who flocked in large numbers to surround the camps, hoping to attract the soldiers. This became known as khaki fever. It was shocking to the middle classes who viewed female chastity as respectable and something discreet and alluring rather than this very overt display of sexuality. Dealing with girls and young women in a sexual context for the police who were mainly composed of young fit men caused the police a problem, particularly if they made a wrongful arrest and were then accused of behaving like uniform ruffians with girls and young women, these accusations often being publicised in the press. So the police were very wary of doing anything other than giving a warning to the women or arresting the known prostitutes. They said, but to all, to arrest a known prostitute or, or to, to accuse someone of prostitution, they said to have they had to watch a woman for a long time to be sure that an accusation of prostitution would bring a successful conviction that couldn't be overturned in a court. Furthermore, accusations of, of prostitution required a medical examination, and if the woman was found to be innocent on examination, there were grounds again for accusations of the police acting like uniform ruffians with innocent women, to the detriment of the police service when this was publicised in the press as a result of a court appearance. The government introduced measures to ban women from congregating around the camps, but this didn't really prevent the more determined from gathering a few miles away to be followed by the troops. So controlling this type of behaviour, which outraged public decency, was a real problem for the police. And secondly, as we move a bit further on into the war, we can see that within a year, inevitably, there was a scandal about the number of war babies said to be in their thousands around the country. However, an investigation by religious groups found that the scare was vastly exaggerated. There were probably around 20 war babies, if that, around Britain. And so the scandal whipped up by the press subsided. But this didn't stop the investigations by the police of abortions, which were illegal at this time, not only for the women themselves, but also for others who could be accused of having provided her with implements or medicines to produce an abortion. A maximum sentence at that time of penal servitude for life could be given to the women or their suppliers. The police were taught how to detect an abortion and how to deal with it by questioning those living in the house or, or their neighbours. Investigation of suspected abortion gradually became 
became more the role for the women police as the war progressed. And the third area um, of this um, sexual morality was really what created the main form of moral panic throughout Britain. And this was the spread of venereal disease. And it also, the moral panic not only spread throughout Britain, but also throughout the, the dominions, which was initially put down to being spread by the prostitutes. At this time, there was no cure for the disease. If the troops caught it, they were said to, it was said to lessen their ability to resist the harsh conditions of war in the trenches and also to diminish their, their physical strength generally. So it was a serious issue for the army. But the army demanded that anyone who had the symptoms must report them or be liable to be disciplined. In Britain, they were then taken to hospital and treated with salvacin. Now, this didn't cure them, but it certainly made them feel extremely unwell, whereas beforehand they were fitter and, and, and well. So they had to spend long periods in hospital to recover. This removed them from the front line, which was a serious disadvantage for the army at a time when, very, when fit young men under 41 were needed in the armed forces urgently. With thousands thought to be infected, According to the Royal Commission on Venereal Disease, which reported in March 1916, and the effect of the disease on the future health of the nation, the spread of the disease caused serious concerns. In trying to contain the spread, the women police became seen as the most effective, as they patrolled the parks and open spaces, and also met troops returning on vacation at the London railway stations, to warn them not to be lured by the enticements of prostitution. And also, uh, the army gave leaflets uh, to their troops, um, warning them of the dangers of getting involved in prostitution. However, as early as February 1917, the Governor-General of Australia, Sir Munro uh, Ferguson, Sir Ronald Munro Ferguson, sent a telegram to the Colonial Office pleading with the government to clean up the streets of London in particular, and other major cities also, to prevent the troops from coming into contact with temptation. However, two months later, at the first Imperial War Conference held in London, the Dominions, particularly led by the Canadian Prime Minister Robert Borden, implored the government, government to act by removing temptation from the troops and were told by the Home Office that legislation was being passed and the women police were doing a good, doing a good job. To give you a, an indication of the seriousness of the situation, parents of soldiers from overseas had been writing to their governments to say that they had lent their sons willingly to fight and expected that they would die in, ba in battle and be considered heroes. But they hadn't expected that they might return on demobilization with venereal disease to spread it to their partners and for it then to become endemic across their nation. And who knew what the impact would be in the following decade? So that those, those returning with the disease would be a disgrace to their families and to the nation. So these were very strong words spoken by the Dominions at this time. However, the following year at the Second Imperial War Conference, when the hoped for legislation had had to be abandoned due to it being unworkable. The Dominion said they were profoundly disappointed as they could see little change in the situation in Britain. The spread of venereal disease by that time was seen to be out of control, as whereas at the outset of war the disease was seen to be spread by prostitutes. By mid-1918, 70% of the spread was seen to be by women and girls who were spoken of as amateur girls, that is, those who were likely to find men in khaki immensely attractive, and as the women police said, went beyond
beyond the bounds of respectability. By the end of the war, there was seen to be no change in this situation. And the fourth area that I wanted to come to in relation to the change of um, work for the police was something that I found really intriguing, was the police journal publishing columns which were called Police as Plowmen. And I first came across this in um, February and March 1917, which, after a long, hard winter, the potato crop had rotted in the ground so that potatoes were nowhere to be found in the population for many months. As well as this, with the U-boats sinking a large and increasing number of cargo ships bringing supplies, particularly grain to Britain, also threatened bread supplies and vastly increased the price the prices. This meant that two of the staples in the diets of around, of around 80% of the population were likely to be jeopardised, if not removed altogether. British farmers were not used to having to feed the nation because of the large amounts of imports, of imports such as wheat, which could be produced more cheaply overseas, so that, so that around 81% of wheat was imported at that time. The spring of 1917, however, made it crucial that British farmers should be able to feed the nation to, to avoid starvation, which was already being seen in Germany and other combatant nations. But a large proportion of farm workers had gone to war, so that there was not the manpower to plough the fields, to sow the crops or to harvest them. So the government intervened to take control of farming, sending soldiers mainly from the Home Defence Force to help to plough the land and to sow crops, which was urgently needed before the end of April to ensure that a crop was produced. But there were insufficient numbers with the appropriate farming skills and with the tremendous urgency of only six weeks to get the crops planted. All other avenues were explored to provide farmers with sufficient labour. But farmers were not willing to work with just anybody if they had no knowledge or experience of farming. So suitable people had to be found. So businesses and local authorities were asked to temporarily release their men with agricultural skills. And in England, 10 authorities released policemen, while in Scotland, nine did so. In all, around between 500 and 600 policemen were released, most temporarily. But a few, such as in Birmingham, were still seen on the land for the harvest of 1917, and into November at least. You may recall how at the beginning of the interview we talked about around a third of all policemen at this time came from an agricultural background. Indeed, they were in a larger proportion in the police service than in the population as a whole. So they were an ideal source of recruitment back into agriculture and had their jobs protected for their eventual return into the police service. For me, and I hope you'll agree, that the policy of home food production with its speedy and radical implementation, which prevented the nation from starvation and also prevented the food riots which were seen in other nations, such as Germany and Austria-Hungary, was one of the triumphs of the Lloyd George government. So that the change and accentuation of some of the problems that the police had to deal with was as a result of the changes seen in the makeup of society as a whole. So that when many young fit men were removed from the family situation, the social structure had to adjust accordingly. So what structural and organisational and cultural changes did the police go through in responding to the new wartime situation? The structural and organisational changes were considerable, as they were in almost every area in Britain and in the combatant nations, and escalated as the war progressed. At the outset, army reservists serving in the 
police were called up overnight in their thousands. So, for example, the Metropolitan Police lost over a thousand policemen on the day that war was declared, which rose to around 3,000 in the first week of the war. And the same occurred in forces throughout the country. Also, many volunteered in the early days, some if they were in unmarried or newly recruited signed up um, without gaining permission from their chief constable so that they lost their pension, uh, their pensions, which would have been negligible anyway. But also they lost the um, willingness of the police service to automatically um, have them back when the war finished or, or when they were demobilised. It was the longer serving and married police officers who were more anxious to gain permission from their chief constable in order to retain their pension arrangements and the other benefits such as housing allowances for their families and also the um, agreement of the police service to have them back again after the war. So that in the first year of the war, the war, policemen were said to leave at an alarming rate until some forces banned their joining, joining the military, except in special circumstances, which were not, were not stated, but were seen in Glasgow. Also, when the commissioner of the, Met the Metropolitan Police realised early in 1915 that a large number of highly ex experienced officers were due to retire, he gained, he gained agreement from the Home Office, which was passed in legislation, that banned all police officers across Britain from retiring hiring, uh, and receiving their pension until the end of the war. There were also some temporary policemen appointed from the outbreak of war who were sworn in and therefore they could arrest um, and appointed just for the duration of the war. But they were disliked by the regular policemen as they were thought to be shirkers from enlisting in the armed forces and were said to be by the police uh, using the police as inverted commas funk holes uh, to hide from enlisting in the military. So these changes gave a small core of regular police officers, many of whom were past retirement age. But during the war, a few were invalided out and so returned to the police service, but these were often only fit for desk work. The police services were given permission by the Home Office early in the war to recruit a large number of part-time voluntary special constables, and each force was encouraged to do so, to recruit them. Each worked a minimum of four hours a week, and were older men who had, a, who had other major demands on their time, such as running their own business, while being a special constable on a voluntary basis. Also, when conscription was introduced and tribunals were set up, some gave exemptions on condition that the men exempted joined the special constabulary. Increasingly, women, patrice, women police and patrols were in evidence, but they were not during the war part of the police service, nor were, they, uh, nor were the vast majority given the powers of arrest. They required police permission by signing their, their, their cards, their, their work cards, um, to carry out their work, which became generally with women and children, and as I've just alluded to, mainly in dealing with sexual morality, and also in insist, uh, assisting their police in their general work. As the war progressed, you see the police still employing large numbers of fit young men with a struggle by the chief constables to retain them in the light of attempts to cone them out. The chief constables frequently told tribunals that the men were performing essential duties and could not be released, and that their police force was down to the bare minimum to be effective. In the last year of the war, this was hugely contentious between individual officers, with those who were retained being seen as given favoured treatment over those who were released, often being seen as a punishment for insubordination. The police journal pleaded with senior officers responsible for releasing policemen into the army 
army for a policy for release that would be seen as fair to everyone, particularly when those who came home on leave from the army and went back to visit their police stations claimed that they'd seen many young officers who had resisted going to war. And of course, this appeared in the police journal. Their letters appeared in the police journal. So the bitterness was evident and increased with those remaining being branded as shirkers and unpatriotic and having even slurs on their manhood by not signing up. Often when on the beat, they were shouted and sworn at by women, asking them why they weren't in the army. A young fit man like you, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. With a crowd gathering around them, making similar remarks and giving them a white feather. So gradually, the police became more and more attacked. Uh, the, the younger officers became more and more attacked for not having gone to war. Let's talk about the police. How did communities respond to police during the Great War? The upper and middle classes saw the police as carrying out the moral values of the day uh, by arresting criminals, protecting life and property and maintaining order. Their powerful and imposing physiques on the streets were um, which a presence which indicated authority and Britishness. Uh, you know, the Bobby on the beat with his traditional helmet and uniform um, was seen as definitely the authority figure on the streets. The police have also traditionally had a social conscience so that in Victorian times, when um, the police in Edinburgh saw children on the streets with no shoes and with ragged clothing so that they shivered in the cold, they set up a clothing scheme for destitute children with funds raised from police concerts in the city and form of the scheme, the scheme is still in existence today. The scheme was so popular that it was adopted by many forces throughout Britain and was recommended by Winston Churchill to Queen Victoria as a, as a scheme that could form part of her Diamond Jubilee celebrations. In this way and others, such as converting buildings into clubs for boys and girls from the working classes, they gained increasing access to working class communities who otherwise viewed uh, the police with suspicion and thought of them only as arresting and cautioning people. The police were seen by the working classes as authority figures who would spoil the lives of the working classes by doing such things as stopping gambling, including cock and dog fights, interfering with street markets by licensing and inspection, and by patrolling the streets to, to prevent unruly behaviour. This often meant that they were resented to such an extent by the, by the working classes that they were attacked, and it was not unusual to hear of police officers being injured or killed um, as a result of their duties um, on the street. What was the legacy of policing during the Great War in post-war Britain? Yes, now the end of the war was a watershed for the police services in England, Wales and Scotland, mainly due to the police unrest at their paying conditions of service, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and this resulted in the Metropolitan Police strike of the 30th of August 1918, when the war was not yet over. And the issue of policemen having no voice for their grievances to be heard with the refusal of government to acknowledge a police union and the harsh treatment meted out to those who joined was a serious issue for the police services as a whole. This resulted in the Committee on the Police Service, commonly known as the Desmond Committee, after its chairman, who first reported um, in 1918 and their second report was in 1920. Their remit was to inquire and report on methods of recruitment, conditions of service, rates of pay, pensions and allowances of the police forces in England, Wales and Scotland. One of their main recommendations was standardisation across Britain of pay in the lower grades, standardisation of pensions and the number of years that had to be worked to be eligible for a pension, hours of duty and overtime, housing and allowances for items such as boots. Another major 
recommendation was that they should have a national representative body for the police, to which representation could be made by all grades. This would give each policeman a voice for grievances and a forum for debate, and this developed into the Police Federation. The Police Act 1919 made the Secretaries of State for England and Wales and the Secretary of State for Scotland responsible for pay, allowances, pensions, clothing, expenses and conditions of service for all police forces, so removing these responsibilities from counties and boroughs. However, part of, part of the cost of police forces still lay at a local level, raised in local taxation, although government grants provided a major source of the costs. Other major aspects of reform were that smaller borough forces, which serve populations of under 50,000, were to be merged with their county forces in a spirit of efficiency, and police forces were to be lent from one area to another in times of need, which happened, hadn't happened before that time. Apart from these reforms of the service, one of the aspects of policing is their social conscience, that is, the remit to help their fellow men, women and children, particularly when they see them in distress. This can be seen immediately after the war, when they were responsible for building night shelters, particularly in London, for the many demobilised soldiers who were homeless on their return. And they also provided help for them as part of local initiatives for quite a period of time after the end of the war. Finally, Mary, where can people learn more about your, your work and your book? My recent book's called Policing the Home Front, 1914 to 1918, The Control of the British Population at War. And it was published by Routledge in December 2018. Um, I also have a blog, which can be found at www.writingpolicehistory, or one word, .blogspot.com, on which I write what I'm currently investigating and some of the more interesting finds that I've made. I have a Twitter account, at Dr. Mary Fraser, so that's at Dr. Mary Fraser, uh, on which I include conference presentations and articles that I've written, and I'd welcome contact from your listeners, readers and members. Um, and I also have a short course of five weeks duration at the University of Glasgow, which I really enjoy. Um, I'm expecting that this will start in September, but we're still negotiating that because of the COVID regulations. Um, so that's about it. Well, Mary, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. I've really enjoyed it. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.